I do love the phenomenon of making the Queen read out government propaganda once a year, whether she likes it or not. Yeah, it's kind of a power move on the part of the elected representatives. Right? And then the Americans always wondering, like, I thought the Queen wasn't meant to be political. Why is she doing this? It's just, it's just such a mind-boggling, confusing situation. I also love the idea that the, what the implication of all this American coverage that's saying the Queen's speech is, you know, like some royal, royalist propaganda. It's an attempt to reverse mm. the Battle of Yorktown or whatever. <laughs> what I find really funny about that is the idea that basically up till now, the Queen has been quietly biding her time. And it, <laughs> 2021 is like, I've had it, guys. Enough of this. It's war. <laughs> this is the real queen, people. This is this is exactly who uh, was being waiting to come out all this time, and she's just had enough. <laughs> she's had enough of all the nonsense, and she's she is now governing by herself. Boris is being work. dismissed. It's over. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Industries podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, and Madeline Grant, Telegraph columnist and parliamentary sketchwriter. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing two jam-packed full topics, the British midterms and the Queen's speech. Britain's midterms have promoted dramatic soul-searching for Labour Party's future and renewed questions about the future of Scotland. But should the Conservatives be so confident? Let's start with Labour, who have managed the, to lose the Hartlepool by-election, the hat-trick of Teesside, West Midlands, mayorships, as well as several councils such as County Durham for the first time in a century. But I'm kind of interested in the, the politics of this and whether or not what we're seeing right now is a permanent realignment in terms of the Conservative Party support coming from the Midlands and the North. Is that kind of popular narrative more or less true? So this is part of the broader alignment. Yes, I do. I do think that's true. It's that it's an alignment that's been taking place for some time. Brexit has catalyzed it, but I don't think Brexit caused it. Um, I think mm. it made it move faster. But as people like you know Dr. Steve Davies at the IEA have been pointing out, this actual this shift away from the set the soft left, I suppose, is is the kind of moderate left that Keir Starmer represents. Parties that follow roughly that template have been losing all across Europe. So it is a bigger thing, but I think that it's. You know, it, it, there are also specific reasons that are very particular to to the to the UK. I think the pandemic has been a big part of it. Actually, there is this typically there is a kind of rally to the flag effect when you have a big national crisis like this. People tend to club together, and of course, the success of the vaccine vaccination rollout has 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 worked very well for the Tory party electorally. But it's also meant, I think, that the opposition has really struggled to be heard because. I've I found what sketching every week as I do Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer that the, the big difficulty for the for Keir Starmer has always been that if you criticize the government during this time of national crisis you can be accused of being kind of unpatriotic not caring not really being a team player and you can be called captain hindsight for saying things that should have happened but equally if you say nothing and you just agree with everything the government does then you're not really in opposition like what's the point of you so i do actually feel some sympathy for for keir starmer i do think it's been very difficult for the labor party to get their message across during the pandemic but of course there's there, there's also they're also dealing with longer term political issues i mean the legacy of jeremy corbyn you don't just reverse that kind of disgust that electors felt for Jeremy Corbyn specifically to do with things like a perceived lack of patriotism. It's quite difficult to undo that 
in such a short amount of time. So Labour in a difficult position, really, because they haven't they've they've really struggled to be heard and to get their message across. I think I think that's partly what's done it. Actually, there's you know out and out on the campaign trail. They frequently, my colleagues described chatting to people who just had no idea who Keir Starmer was, and of course Boris is very easily recognisable. And he does have this this kind of popular touch that the left don't really understand. It kind of flummoxes them, but it's definitely it's there and it's real. Yeah, what was quite fascinating is it wasn't necessarily a good couple of weeks for Boris coming up to the by-election with all the the controversies around the flat redecoration and all the claims about cronyism. But in the end, it didn't really seem to matter. People. In the in the let's say the Westminster bubble were focused on the minutia, whilst people more broadly were going into the booth and and voting their their minds that that had nothing to do with that. And I think there's a lot to be said for the the kind of Stephen Davies or you know David Goodhart idea about realignment, and we're seeing that uh, really across the world a kind of post-industrial realignment where mm-hmm. the working class no longer feels particularly well represented by the parties of the left that you that have now become very metropolitan in their focus, very global globalist yep. to, to use that kind of almost Trumpian phrase in their outlook and yep. therefore a kind of dismissive and aggressive and abusive of people who are patriotic. And there was yep. that classic meme going around saying, you know, we think that the country is terrible and disgusting. Please vote for us, uh, the Labour Party. And it's of course, <laughs> yes. not excited anyone. Um, Daniel, what, what do you make of it? I So one, one of the things that you mentioned there about the kind of flat redecoration not seeming to have much of an impact. I think part of the reason for that is that actually a lot of these these kind of midterms that we're talking about, uh, council elections, mayoral elections and things like that, people are actually voting a lot more on local issues than they are on national issues as well. So they're more worried about which council is likely to you know, get the bins out on time, etc. And, and be more efficient uh, at doing things relating to mayoralties as well. So a lot of these things that people would assume on the national level would really strongly affect people's vote. And, you know, people have heard of these these various news stories and stuff, you look at polling, but it just doesn't seem like those are factoring in quite as much. Obviously, there is still a role to be played um, from Boris and his kind of superior reputation at this stage to Keir, but it's worth bearing in mind that it's not just from the Westminster level that has that has affected these election results. And the other thing I'd say is that I don't. It's definitely the pandemic playing a real role here in having Keir struggle to kind of define the Labour Party as an effective opposition. But I think it's also the fact that the Conservatives aren't really taking a strong uh, or as clear uh, ideological approach as they sometimes do. It, it's more of I wouldn't call it pragmatic because I think that's personally I'm a bit more cynical of. Uh, of the kind of approach that they have at the moment to various policy issues, but certainly certainly less ideological than they have been before. And that is a really difficult challenge for any Labour Party because often they've succeeded or they, they've kind of drummed up a lot of support where they've defined themselves as very much not Tory. And that's kind of the, the key selling point for, for a lot of people who, who are naturally and, and tribalistically sceptical of the Conservatives, and partially because of the pandemic, because it's not really a, a sort of clear Labour-Tory divide on pandemic policy, but partially because, in general, on, on various other issues, as you know, we'll talk about in the second section on the Queen's speech, the Conservatives aren't as, I think, clearly, it's, it's not as easy to discern a clear ideology from them as it has been in the past. Yeah, I would. I would also say that the realignment, in a way, incentivizes you to be less 
ideological about economics that part one factor of the realignment mm. is that it seems to be that voters place a bigger weight on a sense of overall values as opposed to an economic policy and the Tories have evolved beyond that you know there's we're a long way away from a politician like Margaret Thatcher who had very clear economic principles and a specific philosophy behind it but Labour on the other hand because of its partly because of it still has pretty heavy trade union clout despite the fact that you know far fewer a much lower proportion of British employees and members of trade unions they still have this trade union influence and they're still kind of in a way trapped in the wrong conversation I was I was struck by um, Angela Rayner who herself is she's got a big power base in the trade unions and so on she was tweeting stuff like I was born in Stockton or wherever it was but I was raised in the labour movement and just listening to her saying that kind of language it feels very outdated I think that Partly the problem is Labour's own party machinery, that you have the, the trade union influence and you have the fact that they elect a deputy leader. It means that you get these, often you'll get two two, two colleagues who have to work together who, who cannot stand each other and are almost encouraged to develop their own competing power bases, one of which is generally very kind of, has the backing of the trade unions. So there's, they have this unwieldy party machinery that leaves, leaves them kind of trapped in the past and actually less able to um, adapt to the new um, the realignment of politics. I, I think I think you're right that effectively we've got we're, we're playing politics on on two axes simultaneously. One is that kind of economic left right divide, and the other is that kind of cultural conservative versus globalist or localist globalist divide. And the Tories have kind of found a sweet spot because they've realised the majority of the country is that kind of less globalist worldview and, and Labour can't be successful unless it can speak to that patriotic vote. But I, I do wonder if we're giving too much credit to the Tories in the sense that, you know, they're amassing all this power and we're going to come to this in a second, but but what are they doing with it other than what is more or less a kind of Labourite series of policies that they're not, uh, Boris seems to be very popular, he has this huge majority, but what is he using it to achieve? And is this in some way, this election result kind of making them lazy? The fact that they can, the Labour Party, and it's not necessarily they even think the Tories are being rewarded. I think Labour's kind of being punished in a lot of these places because there's a mm. perception that Labour hasn't done anything for a lot of these these areas and they don't represent them particularly well. The Tories are coming in, sweeping up all these seats and thinking it's some great endorsement for themselves rather than actually doing something productive and, and long-term. And therefore, there's just that that risk that the Tories end up kind of overconfident. And although Keir Starmer might not be the, the, the guy who can defeat the Tories, there might be someone else in future who can better present that in a kind of Blairite way to the electorate without being Blair, obviously. And then the, the Tories' base is, is quite broad now, but quite weak because people are quite fickle in their voting habits and people are no longer attached to their traditional party identities. So people can just as quickly go back to Labour if there's a bit of a stench about the Tories. So I think that their win and, and what they're achieving is that they're going to be staying in power for quite a while. Uh, that's kind of a, a cynical answer. And it's I good think to be that, the king. Well, yeah, quite. But but what they're doing with it in a positive sense in terms of what I think we would all describe it as positive is a much more difficult question. And actually, I think this kind of focus very much on, I guess, populism rather than going for the more clearly ideological policies and things like that, it might win elections now. But if we think about the longer term future here, I think that a lot of the the realignment, whilst it's true that the cultural issues are coming to the fore and economic issues are dying away, I think that Labour's kind of future attempts at forming an electoral coalition are 
going to include especially the young generation and the Tories at the moment with with a few exceptions which we'll, we'll get onto on when talking about the Queen's speech I think they still don't really have a very strong offering to young people and they're not making the most I would say of this opportunity that they have to change some of their previous approaches uh, in order to prevent that and I think in the long term what you're going to have actually is a kind of resurgent labor at least amongst people who you know, who are young at the moment and, and will gradually get older in the next few decades. Um, so it's, it's obviously not good news for Labour to hear about the idea of, well, that their project is very, very long term and it's, it's a generational thing as much <laughs> as it is about geography. But I think that, that that's something that the Conservatives need to really bear in mind here, that sure, they're, they're winning in the kind of short to medium run and they're doing it very effectively. But the kind of cost of moving away from any sort of um, focus on on ideology, I think, means that they're, they're missing a trick on, I mean, housing is obviously the elephant in the room when it comes to this, but there's plenty of other issues as well where the same can be said. So, Maddie, um, Thatcher managed to quite consistently lose in the midterms. Um, she didn't kind of tend to pick up seats in, in local council elections for the Tories, obviously because they she was effectively giving the country kind of the hard medicine it needed and the kind of reforms and the structural reforms that led to later prosperity. W- where is that sense gone in the Tory party? Like, what are they doing with all this power? Well, I think they've they've shifted leftwards in a big way. They've undone the legacy of Thatcher and they've made a big thing of doing so. They're, they are working incredibly hard through the levelling up agenda to, to hold on to their new support base. But I, I would question just how sustainable that is in the long term. I mean, firstly, personally, I find it annoying as someone who's, who, you know, who's probably in many ways a kind of natural Tory voter I feel personally a bit marginalised by this government in a weird way because I feel that they are they're anti graduates. They they seem to think that they can. It's bad if people move to cities to work. They seem to be anti young people, anti freedom. I mean, I'm very. We're going to talk about the planning and housing stuff, which looks really promising. But on the whole, there's just generally a kind of dismissive attitude towards young people, and I think that that is that is complacent because firstly, by moving to the left, you create a new you create a new constituency. That involves the significant shifting of the Overton window to the left, which, you know, that it's quite hard to reverse that. But also it means that you, you, you've set yourself quite difficult targets. I mean, think about everyone talked about the Ben Houchen's, you know, absolutely decisive victory in the Tees Valley. To win, to win that mayoralty, what did the Tories have to do? They had to nationalise an airport. They had to put the bill for fuels operational losses. They had to then give priority consideration to a whole bunch of plans and schemes specifically for that area that will in practice, you know, amount to probably millions, tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions of pounds, right? And it also involves overriding other areas of their policy agenda. So, you know, levelling up Trump's net zero because we can nationalise airports now. But I think there is a, it's finite. There's a limit of to how much of the nakedly pork barrel stuff that government can implement and the rest of the electorate will be will happy to pay for. It's so interesting. What happened in London is fascinating because the Tories, in the, in the run-up to, to, to the campaign, they started taking money and campaign numbers away from Sean Bailey. They scaled back his team. They obviously thought London was a totally a lost cause. And then London actually ended up being a lot closer than people expected. But it shows, I think, how the Tories have sort of, they seem to take for granted that London and the South East will keep being this kind of cash cow that will pay for the rest of public spending. But if you treat that cash cow very badly, don't be surprised, you know, if, if people do. I think right now they're banking on the fact that there's no one else for the, these people to vote for, the economic liberals. But 
you know, that there is a limit to it. That how long will people vote for a Conservative Party that's not Conservative? What's What's the point of showing up? At the at the polling booth, if the Tory yeah. party isn't going to believe in anything, it feels like they're they're definitely playing what what political scientists might call cartel politics, which is to say they're trying to use the resources of the state to buy up constituencies and, and buy up yeah. votes. Yeah. And that this is typically con- contrasts with like a mass party, like historically, Labour Party was a mass party that actually represented the working class, and the Tories were a mass party that represented you know the middle class, the shopkeepers. Now they're kind of just shuffling resources around the country in order to buy votes. It's actually nothing new about this in any way. This this was effectively new Labour strategy was we're going to throw money at all these seats. It never actually works. It doesn't government can't create economic prosperity in these areas. It can't the whole the whole basis of leveling up if it means by building infrastructure. Infrastructure in places it needs to follow where people want to be and where they want to live and needs to follow industry and business and and innovation, whatever else. So you can't just create it by building some infrastructure. So no. it ends up being quite a disastrous strategy. What it seems to be lacking from New Labour, at least New Labour had a bit of a philosophy about the city and about I'm creating the prosperity in London and then spreading that around the country. It doesn't seem to be that much interest in creating the prosperity in London now, just spreading things out around the country. So I don't I don't know where the end point is on this. I mean, it's the three marketeers. that I don't think we, we're not arrogant enough in our beliefs to think that we know everything. That's the whole point. The idea is that decision making is pulled amongst people and you use bottom up signals and market signals and so on. You don't claim to have perfect knowledge that is pulled purely in the government's hands. Boris Johnson over the weekend essentially said something to the effect of pledging to prevent the brain drain from towns to cities, uh, to prevent the, the reasons why people leave towns to go and work in cities. Now, I think there's there's obviously there's there's some merit to that. There are some town, towns that have 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 not received enough funding where people who want to to, to want who, who might like to stay there are the opportunities and so on. But basically, Boris Johnson saying that he can reverse the tide of urbanisation and undo the, <laughs> why, undo the reasons why cities are places where graduates want to live, where young people mm. want to live, fun dynamic places, places where innovation happens, agglomeration effects. There are very good reasons why innovation and job creation happens in cities. And I just think for a conservative government, they can change it. It's like that that's like canute stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's like Boris saying I can undo gravity and I'm gonna we're gonna put we're gonna undo gravity and, and things are gonna float in the air. Very, very popular policy, I'll give him that. <laughs> I, I mean I'd love to be able to, you know, jump around and, and not fall back to the ground, but that doesn't seem like reality. And the natural pull of cities is not something that's bad. And it's so ironic, of course, because all these stories were pulled to universities and then were pulled to cities. I mean, it's not like Boris made his career in in um, Leeds, right? He made his career in London. That's not to say Leeds is a bad place or that or that anything like that. But Boris Johnson a few years ago would never have said something like this. Oh well, he used to be an evangelist for London, if we remember back when he was mayor. It's it's you know the London is the world city, and it is a global city, and, and you've got to lean on your um lean on your your potential. Just just before we move on to our next section, I'm kind of interested, uh, Daniel and, and Maddie, to get your thoughts on what on Scotland, the SNP. In a sense, you could argue should be disappointed. They didn't quite get a majority. They've had majorities previously, but they're one seat off. With the Greens, there is a majority, at least in in the Scottish Parliament, for another independence referendum. Is that inevitable in your view, Daniel? And, and should Westminster listen to those demands and just let it happen? Well, I, I think first off, it's just amazing that, you know, they, they might have been one seat short of the overall majority, but it is worth remembering with the Scottish Greens supporting independence as well, that they... they they're able to form a kind of coalition around this, which seems certainly like a possibility, then that there is a, an effective majority for 
independence in the, the Scottish Parliament now. And, and this is after like a, a decade and a half of being in government. They're, they're one seat short of a majority. We talk about you know the untouchable years when it comes to Thatcher or Blair. This, this is equally amazing that the SNP have managed to, to kind of continue this performance for, for so long. So just to, to kind of acknowledge that. Uh, but I think that... Yeah, in in my view, certainly, I think that maybe not inevitable, but it, it certainly seems even more likely that, than it did before. I think that we have to kind of think that with this effective majority, um, obviously Sturgeon kind of made an actual majority the test for whether there's popular consensus for another referendum. But but you know, I'm sure she's she's kind of changed. Right. Well, she said, we said before the election, I'm not going to really try to break the law and do a, a referendum through the Scottish Parliament. And then the day afterwards said, I'll see you in court, Boris Johnson. So it doesn't seem like she's particularly consistent yeah. here. I, I, th- I think it is worth saying, though, I, I do think there is a genuine desire to have a kind of, uh, a, maybe not quite by the books attempt to getting another referendum, but certainly keeping within kind of existing legal avenues. I don't think that, at least in the SNP, maybe with the exception of some of their grassroots, there, there's anything more than a, a small amount of people who, who want to go for more of a, a wildcat style referendum that maybe doesn't pay quite as much attention to the, the various processes that are involved in doing this. But yeah, and it, and it puts, I mean, it puts Boris in a, a very difficult position when it comes to this as well. We, we had a webinar about this earlier this week, and one of our guests on that made a very good point, Rachel Cunliffe, which saying, Imagine if the EU tried to deny the UK's chance of having a Brexit referendum, right? So regardless of whether you think the comparison between the two is apt or not, I think obviously there are a number of key differences. But the point she was making is that you're going to get a serious backlash from people who might naturally have been Remainers there saying, you know, okay, I I would have liked to vote Remain, but what's the EU saying that we we can't have a referendum when we've clearly got like a, a significant proportion of the population that wants to do this and who is the the eu to to undermine the will of the uk government and i worry that if we do go down the that sort of path when it comes to scottish independence and actually it's gonna if it does end up happening down further down the line then we're gonna have a lot more alienated people and a lot more mm. uh, people who may be skeptical of the union so maddie how long can the, the kind of govite strategy of of love bombing scotland and trying to delay another <laughs> referendum go on for or is it better to kind of rip off the band-aid and, and just do another one or should you go they go back to the previous strategy of saying no 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 what's in a generation well i just i don't think the smp do have a mandate for another referendum i also don't think that the results of an election that was about a whole range of issues not just a referendum not just indie ref i don't think that could be interpreted as an effective majority for independence either not least because it was quite interesting how during throughout the campaign and in the run-up to the campaign, the SNP quietly removed traces of IndyRef2 from their campaign literature. They deliberately downplayed it. They didn't talk about it very much at all. They focused on Nicola Sturgeon as the leader because they knew that talking of IndyRef2 was a big, was basically scaring off moderate floating voters. So they went big instead on Nicola Sturgeon's qualities as a leader. So even if they didn't win a majority. Pro-unionist parties narrowly edged the elect, getting 51% of the vote, I think. But even if they had won, won a narrow majority, I don't think it would justify it since it was about a lot more than just the prospects of, of, of another referendum. In terms of how they should, how should Westminster respond to it? Well, 
you know, I, I think I think if anything, they need to give a bit less sucker to the SNP in their claims. They should call their bluff. There is a reason the SNP don't like to talk about this because they, they often fall apart when it comes to the kind of nuts and bolts arguments for um, independence. You know, they, they they really struggle here. They don't have answers to many many of the big questions, and I think that's partly why they have been not discussing IndyRef two because they tend to fall apart on on closer examination. And in in ways, I would actually argue that. Initially, I thought, oh, God, Brexit, this has doomed the union that, that I care so much about. But actually, I think the Brexit has created a whole number of practical difficulties for Scotland and independent Scotland, such as the sorting out the border with England, the possibility of um, attempting to rejoin the EU, the, the, the likely pushback from the EU that, uh, of a Scotland, an independent Scotland attempting to join on the basis that they don't want to be in encouraging successionist parties etc um and basically the, the SNP they talk a good talk on independence but they have gone rather quiet about it recently and, and I think that unionists actually need to be a bit more muscular and sort of call them out on their nonsense a bit more often well talking about talking a good talk time to move on to the Queen's speech earlier this week we saw the government take a break from incessant wrangling about lockdowns and the pandemic to attempt to outline its broader legislative agenda in the Queen's speech. There's obviously a lot to cover here and not quite as much time, a lot to like as well, and perhaps more than a little to loathe. So let's get into some of the details of their policy pronouncements. I guess just first off, it was it was pretty bumper Queen's speech. So talking more broadly, um, what what do some of the policies that were announced say about the kind of overall ideological direction, I guess, of the government? We talked about this a little in the previous section, but does it kind of sketch out a clearer version of what Toryism and, and conservatism in 2021 is, or, or actually is it more of a kind of mixed bag with no real direction? Maybe Maddie, if you wanted to come in on that. I don't get a strong sense of a kind of particularly ideologically coherent policy platform. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I've, I sense there are some areas where I'm sure we would all strongly agree that it was a good idea. I think particularly the new rules about or the, the proposed bill. It remains to be seen if it will get through the through Parliament. That's a big if. But removing the power from local planning authorities to turn down housing developments if they meet accepted standards. That's quite a big deal and very deeply sound. Exactly the kind of radical policy that the Tories need to be doing to resolve the housing crisis, but also to try to build up their constituency amongst young voters, which will be very important. You know, uh, if people don't own homes, I don't I don't think that they will naturally, there's this assumption that people naturally become conservatives, but I think that only happens if they have the trappings of conservatism, stability and the, the ability to save and all the rest of it. So, I'm, you know, there's, there's something like that. But then there's some quite harsh on law and order stuff. And... I mean, it's, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you what the kind of overall guiding principles of it were. I think it's more, there are certain certain things that, that, that I reckon our listeners would, would support and, and others less so. And, you know, the, the, well, there's like 30 things, all quite different. <laughs> <laughs> it is really a, a ragtag set of policies. And I think a, a lot of them were re-announced. What I, what I find quite fascinating is, not not to uh, insult your profession, Maddie, but it seems like there's a there's a lot of getting sucked in. I guess particularly when you need uh, a leader to write, 
to kind of put in the same policy that we've already know about previously, even if there isn't that much additional detail. So I'm not sure that there was in fact much new in there. This is all, a lot of this legislation has been been previously flagged. I don't know if there is a particularly coherent narrative that, that runs between it, between planning reform, online safety, the ad ban plan that we've talked a little bit about in the last few days, which is banning digital advertising of supposedly junk food and before 9pm on television, calorie counts on menus, banning conversion therapy, mm. making it harder for some seekers, animal rights issues, APRA. It's like everyone's just kind of thrown something into the into the bag. They have a long list. I, I don't actually know how they can legislate this many things. They, they actually don't have the time to do it. So it just feels like a shopping list. It does feel also that you can see how, I mean, Boris Johnson is often accused of being sort of, and this is definitely having worked with him, I would agree. He's quite, he's quite suggestible. You know, if you said to him over the phone when chatting about what he was going to write in his column, occasionally I would just say something to him and I would find that that phrase that I'd said had ended up verbatim in the article. <laughs> so who was the real writer of the, all the articles? It was you, Maddie, wasn't it? <laughs> certainly wasn't the best of bits of his articles. He's an excellent writer. But, you know, I just noticed that he's quite swayed by people around him. And you could see the influence of the various competing factions at the court of Boris. You know, that they've got the kind of Dominic Cummings and the um, Aria and all of that stuff. And then you've got Animal Sentience, which is speaks more to the kind of the, the envir- environmentalist Tories. I mean, it's mm. just it's quite a mixed bag. It's, it's in a way, it's sort of quite symbolic of the Boris Johnson challenge, which is essentially trying to be all things to all people. And there's, of course, there's even a bit of soundness for the, the Adam, Adam Smith Institute. And Yeah, what was it? Rishi was asked in Parliament the other day, you know, is, is there any Thatcherism left in the government? And his response was, oh, we've got full expensing coming. And I was like, well, we do love full expensing and abolishing. It's true, that is something nice to have. I don't know if that's, you know, that in fact, Thatcher, ironically, of course, did the opposite. It was, they lowered the rate and broaden the base and now we want to we want to narrow the base of, of corporate tax ironically it's probably not actually thatcherite it's just kind of a good sound tax policy yeah i i think that the kind of image that pops to mind when i read through some of the the queen's speech is and this is probably why you're the sketch writer and i'm not maddie but boris playing whack-a-mole with a series of different focus groups rather than having any sort of actual you know coherent underlying message behind it but Let's kind of dive into a few of the specific, maybe take three of the, the key ones. And, and let's start, I think, with the positives, the planning bill, just to go into a bit more detail. What is it exactly that it does change about the way that we try and build houses in this country? I guess just for the, the benefit of listeners who might not be familiar with some of the, the key thrust of the reforms. So, I mean, th- this is basically a repeat of what was in, in the government's planning white paper. And the idea of it is to effectively move the UK from a just very discretionary planning system where not only, I mean, there are already local plans, but if you put forward an application that you think is within the local plan, there's still actually a lot of discretion politically for each individual application. So the, the planning committee on the council can say, well, we just you know don't like the look of this that building or we don't like the look of you very much and we're going to re- reject this for whatever reason we like. What this does is it moves it to a little bit more of a predictable system, which is not to say that there won't be democratic input so the, the, the local council will design a plan for different areas within their, their area that they think should be protected and then areas for growth. So in protected areas, it won't be impossible to build, but it'll be particularly difficult and you need kind of special mission. Or in growth areas, um, the, the presumption will be more in favour of development. And if you put in an application in a growth area, it, it would be 
other than for kind of technical reasons, let's say, you know, the, the rooms aren't big enough or it doesn't fit environmental standards or, you know, the doors, whatever it may be. As long as it kind of fits in the requirements, there's also building, big building, beautiful focus here. So kind of an aesthetic requirement, it can then get fast-tracked if it fits the local area. There's also an idea of a renewal category that's somewhere between. It's not clear if that's actually going to be in the legislation in the end. In a sense, though, arguably the real bite of all this is in the targets, um, which is the, the government's had some quite ambitious housing targets. Then there were some concerns about where that's going to lead to building. So there's been a lot of criticism that it's going to lead to building in the southeast where there's most housing need and where there's the highest housing costs. Um, so the government's now come out and said, well, no, no, that's, that's not bit. true. This is going to lead. And I think this is what you were hitting at, hinting at earlier, Maddie, is this whole narrative around the north and the Midlands. And we're going to build more there and that's going to be somehow electrically beneficial. Now, I think that's just basically a load of gobswallop as far as I'm concerned. And um, the reason why housing is cheaper in the north and Midlands, quite frankly, is because there isn't as much of a housing need. And it's in the southeast and London where you actually do need to build more homes and where people want to live and want to move to. And it, if they... We don't exactly know where the algorithm is going to end up. They have said they're changing it. But if the algorithm ends up not prioritising building houses where people want to live, it's not going to alleviate the housing crisis at all. So the, the devil's going to be in the detail. Now, something else that we've talked a lot about, which is the idea of street votes, which is that if basically two-thirds of a street should be able to agree to increase their density, agree to a local style, we think that has a lot of power in terms of creating a win-win situation for housing developments rather than... I want to build an extra store in my house. I have to go get permission from everyone else in the street. You don't really want me to do that. You don't get anything out of it. You're worried about it. Everyone in the, the street would get the same permission to build that additional story. The value of everyone's property would go up, whether or not you choose to build it or not. So we're kind of keen about that as a, as a win-win solution to housing. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's more of a market-based solution because at the moment, it's a very top-down system yeah. the government's talking about when it comes to target, setting targets for local councils. And quite frankly, it might not work. Even if you set these ambitious targets, councils might try and get away around it. That I think, yeah, that's that's about right. And it's such an it's such a fascinating idea. I thought I think it was Ben Southwood's paper on this was so fantastic. But the the other question, of course, is will it actually get through Parliament? I mean, I think there are people like Robert Jenrick understand the problem, and people like Rishi Sunak definitely understand the problem, and they're committed to um, trying to work it out. But it's one of the problems with our style of our, our the structure of our politics. It creates a very strong incentive for MPs at the local level to object to things in the same way that NIMBYism often makes sense to people who are already homeowners at a local level to oppose it. Nationally, it makes much less sense, but we, we, we elect on a kind of constituency basis. And there's already some big opposition from Tory MPs. Good old Theresa May has said, has hinted that she might come back and be somehow involved in the in the backlash from MPs about the planning bill. And there was you know, that we're already seeing lots of NIMBY overtures. So I think that tells you firstly that it's clearly a good bit of legislation because it's upset all the right people, but also that, you know, it is, there's going to be significant opposition from the, from the, from the green benches that, you know, I don't think we should, we should even consider this a sure thing at all. Yeah, I think over the, the kind of past couple of years of the housing debate coming actually to, to be a debate instead of not being really talked about, which is a victory in itself, I've mm. kind of changed my mind and that I used to be a lot more pro- Yimbyism by diktat, which I think this kind of the, the more algorithmic and target-based approach is. Now, obviously, if it does go through, then uh, I still think it's a, a massive improvement on the current system. But the problem is that, as you say, it's very, very easy to have mass opposition to something like this because we have a, a kind of a constituency-based system. And actually, you know, a lot of the MPs that are going to get lumped with the biggest targets are going to be probably well, almost certainly the most vociferous opponents of the bill itself. So 
you, you do have to think more carefully about things like street votes that you mentioned, Matthew, as as being a way of, of trying to make it politically palatable. It, it might be the case that, you know, any kind of improvement in terms of building more houses in the place that people want to live is, is a good thing in theory. But if it can't get through Parliament, then actually we haven't changed anything at all. So, yeah, it certainly made me more uh, more pro-Yumbiism by consensus yeah. than, than I was before. I agree. The trouble is that there are just... I completely agree. The trouble is that there is a big cohort of NIMBY opinion that is not willing to be swayed or waiting for the right incentives, but is simply mm. opposing everything, no matter what it is. And I'm afraid you can't argue with that. But I think it's, I think actually I've noticed amongst, you think Telegraph readership is actually increasingly YIMBY, the letters and emails that I receive. I remember Christian used to make jokes about the CPRE and the Telegraph. and all the, But actually, I think as what's happened is a lot of our readers have kids who are in their 20s or getting to that stage and they're, they're struggling to buy and they sense that it's something that's future generations that they don't get to enjoy the same level of stability. So I think there is a shift in sort of Tory circles as well. But of course, the, the, the NIMBY incentive is always going to be strong at a constituency level. Well, moving from that positive note of, of change in opinion there to some profoundly more negative side of things in the Queen's speech, we have the long-awaited online safety bill getting a bit more announcements on some of the details. Uh, Matthew, you tweeted out a classic Lesh mega thread on this and said <laughs> that it was shaping up to be a, a totally incoherent train wreck. And, and we've gone over this, of course, in previous episodes, but for the benefit of new listeners, I think it might be worth outlining maybe some of what the new developments that we've learned from the Queen's speech are in this online safety bill. Yeah, look, it's, it's difficult to know where to start. We, we now have a hundred, couple hundred pages of legislation, explanatory memorandum, memos, and, and all this all this other stuff. So there's still a lot of details that are, that are emerging and a, and a lot of analysis still to be done. I mean, more or less, the structure of, of the online safety bill has been what was effectively flagged kind of over two years ago now in, in the online safety white paper, which is there's going to be a, a so-called duty of care on the technology companies what does that mean well they're going to have these very vague requirements and it's actually written into the law to protect people from physical or psychological impact of content online now then it's going to be the responsibility of ofcom to develop codes of conduct about how they deal with different issues be it terrorism and and child exploitation or be it self-harm material or online abuse or hate speech, whatever it is. So effectively, Ofcom is being empowered to tell the companies how to moderate their platforms. For the largest companies, that's not just going to relate to unlawful material, but also this very pernicious phrase, which is lawful but still harmful. So effectively, the state will be able to direct companies to remove content that is legal speech otherwise because they have concerns about it. Um, I think that this is, quite frankly, one of the most frightening pieces of legislation that I've I've read in terms of the extent of power it will give the government today, but also to think about a future government. Um, Even if this government does have the best of intentions when it comes to um, free speech and democratic norms, there's nothing to stop a future government from directing, effectively they can direct Ofcom about how they instruct technology companies to moderate their platforms and then the threat is billions of pounds of fines or blocking them. There's a few interesting new elements to this. So after a lot of the criticism of this law, there's all these requirements about free speech. There's these requirements about protecting democratic content, journalistic content, all this kind of very nice sounding stuff. For example, and uh, journalists and Maddie pay attention here, you're going to have a special complaints line to to social media companies if they, they ever remove any of your content 
uh, effectively a, a VIP lane and they're going to have to reinstate journalistic content very quickly. Now, I think this is quite bizarre in the sense that you're exempting journalistic content from this framework and then saying the framework doesn't infringe on free speech. Well, if it didn't infringe on free speech, then why do journalists need this kind of special rights on the platform? And then there's a whole bunch of other issues in there about even the the duties to protect free speech, which they're creating and I think it's problematic in itself. I think it's the wrong way to go about it, to require platforms to host content, which is part of the bill, but then at the same time tell them they mm. can't host other content. So effectively the state telling them what they, they can and cannot have on their platforms. If the Ofcom does instruct them to remove content under their safety responsibilities, that can effectively overrules any requirements to protect free speech. It's kind of hidden in the legislation as something we spotted yesterday, was that they, they fulfil their duties when it comes to free speech if they remove content at Ofcom's direction for safety reasons. So the, the free speech protections seem very weak if the government can just, through Ofcom, over overwrite them at any time they wish. So I, I think there's also another element here which hasn't got as much focus, which is a lot of the focus is on child protection. And in order to ensure that children aren't shown the wrong kinds of content... Um, you've got to identify who is a child and you've got to do that properly using age verification. Um, if you remember the porn laws where the government was going to require you to enter a driver's license or passport to go to a porn site, basically to get the full version of YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, there, there will effectively be a requirement on these companies to do some kind of age verification. And otherwise you can't see any content which could cause harm to children, which is a very broad set of content. So the default of a lot of um, social media sites and search engines will be a, have to be a child-friendly version in order to stop children from seeing it. And I think that in itself is quite scary. There's plenty more I can go into. It's, it's, there's still a lot going on here. But I, I think it's something that we need to keep our eyes on. The government needs to be a lot more careful about than, than what they're currently being. And Maddie, your thoughts on uh, blue checks and journalists now becoming a protected class? <laughs> well, absolutely. I don't think that's the right solution at all. I think the, the government, I have not been through it in any kind of detail because I've been sketching and doing other writing this week. But I definitely think that what's happened, there is a there is a genuine issue. There is a weird position that we're in where platforms can say that they're committed to free speech. At the same time, they do behave like publishers who get to decide what gets published on their platform. And they have the effective monopolies in the marketplace. So they end up playing philosopher kings to the nation. However, they don't, they're not regulated as publishers would be. And I don't like the idea of social media platforms being regulated. I don't think that's the right thing at all. But I do think that we need to acknowledge that there's an unhealthy situation here for free speech, that the the terrain is not equal, that there are effective monopolies. I mean, if you notice what happened recently with social media, where I think millions of people switched to Parler, and then I think it was Amazon, Apple and Google. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Amazon, Apple and Google, they basically joined forces to get Parler removed from the App Store. You know, they say that that was for reasons of kind of social justice, that Parler is full of right-wing lunatics and was was a forum for hate speech. But you could equally argue that they were doing that to protect their, their competitive advantage. Now, I think the situation is unsustainable. The government has wildly overreacted. And when I listen to ministers, I don't really get a strong sense of familiarity with the platform. I don't think they know enough to be regulating it so heavily but I equally think that we need to have some I just don't know what the answer is to it I'm sorry that's really yeah. an answer but there was a serious problem here and we don't have a good answer for it and nor do they. Maddie, I, I kind of agree with you that the social media fans are being excessively censorious if you look at the case of talk radio being removed from YouTube at least temporarily because they were putting forward contrarian positions about coronavirus or even I think Donald Trump being removed from, yeah. from Twitter and Facebook and I don't think that these platforms help themselves by having 
what are effectively content-based censorship. At the same time, though, we've got to put that in context, the fact that the government's actually putting a lot of pressure onto these companies in the US and the UK, across Europe, to become more censorious. They're kind of responding to the threat of regulation. And the, 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 in particular, the talk radio case was, was held up by ministers as a disgrace. Why is talk radio being removed from YouTube? Well, talk radio was removed from YouTube under YouTube's disinformation policy that was explicitly endorsed by the UK government literally days earlier in their final response to the online harms white paper when talking about disinformation. I haven't even got onto that. It's one of the elements of this is that the, the part of the duty of care will be about disinformation. So if, if there is a problem with free speech online, what the government's currently proposing is, is very much the opposite of the solution to it by making it even more difficult for the, the companies to host controversial speech and effectively fine them and create these, all these duties around safety without really creating equivalent duty on the regulator to protect free speech. Well, let's hope that the blue check mafia do not entirely get things their own way. And I say that as a fully paid up member of said mafia. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> on that on that note, I think it's time to bring this podcast of the Pin Factory to an end from the Adam Smith Institute. I've been Daniel Pryor, our head of programs, and I've been joined by my co-host and our head of research, Matthew Lesh, as well as Madeleine Dron, who is Telegraph columnist and parliamentary sketch writer if you like what you heard then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and thank you very much for listening we'll see you next week thank you matthew and madeline